Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. At the beginning of the pandemic, I said that we should stop thinking about when will things get back to normal and recognize that, in a sense, things won't get back to normal. There's not a switch that will flip and everything will go back to the way it used to be. That instead of thinking in terms of normal, what we need to do is think in terms of rebuilding. Because there will be a lot of pieces to put back together as we find our way forward in these uh, uncertain times. Having to think about rebuilding is scary because the unknown is always scary because you don't know if, if things will be better than they were before or worse than they were before. And so we, we get scared. But there's also something exciting about rebuilding as well because of the possibilities of it. Because it could be better. Because the future could be brighter than it was in the past. So as we rebuild, the question that we should be thinking about is what are we going to rebuild? What should this new community that God is calling us to rebuild actually look like? What can we improve? How can we grow? That's the question that I want us to meditate on as we look at Psalm 122. So hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 122, a song of a sense of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Father, as we seek your good this morning, we pray that you would show us the way, that you would illuminate it by the power of your Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You may not know this psalm by number, but if you have any experience in church, you've probably heard those words before. These are words pastors often quote to unmotivated congregations to shame them into enthusiasm. As you file into the church on a Sunday morning, uh, not having had enough coffee for your eyes to be fully open, someone comes and says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And you feel like, oh, I should be gladder than I really am. Right? You're familiar with that sentiment, but that's not at all what Psalm 122 is about. There's a sense of awe, a sense of wonder that you can hear in the psalmist's words as he approaches the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the temple. He has been called to Jerusalem to worship. And as he approaches everything about this journey, this pilgrimage, it's, it's coming to pass before his eyes. This is a song of arrival. We are standing in the gates. 
We are inside the city of Jerusalem. And so we are seeing the fulfillment of the joy that we felt when they first said, let's go, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's a call to Jerusalem that the worshiper experiences come to the temple and worship. And in hearing it feels the joy. So the response of a righteous person, as we saw in Psalm one, a righteous person delights in the things of God delights in, in the thought of gathering in the presence of God in the temple and has that sense of awe of arrival. This is the place. It's fascinating that, that he addresses the city itself. Our feet have been standing within your gates. Oh, Jerusalem, we're here. We are in the house, literally Jerusalem. Can you see us? We are here. It's like finding yourself in a famous city. If you're one of those people who grew up and you only ever saw like New York in, in movies and, and heard about it. And then you visit for the first time and you realize you're looking at the actual Statue of Liberty, not just a, a picture of it. You're seeing these landmarks that are so familiar to you, even though you've never seen them before. And, and you burst into song about New York, New York. And it's embarrassing for everyone who, who sees you doing this. But it's because like a dream is fulfilled, a sense of importance. You are walking on historic, famous grounds. Well, that's what's going on here, only much more. Because New York can't hold a candle to Jerusalem. For generations, God wandered with his people in the wilderness carrying the Ark of the Covenant with them. The dwelling place of God with his people was a tent that you would throw up when it was time to pause and you would take back down when it was time to move on. And that's the way it worked. No home, nowhere to to lay your head, no fixed address. But that all changed when the temple came. And now suddenly God was dwelling with his people in a fixed location in Jerusalem, in that place. And all the people in the land, when it was time to worship him, were called to come to the city of David, to go to the temple, the house of Yahweh and worship. And that's what's happening here. When we are called to to come to Jerusalem, to, to marvel at Jerusalem, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You can imagine all of the emotion that, that an ancient worshiper would have felt. But we're not ancient worshipers. We actually have something better than what they possessed. We have more knowledge, the author of Hebrews says, than they even dreamt of. And because of that, we see the same sights but we see them differently. Revelation 21 changes the way we read Psalm 122, right? There's a collect connecting line through all scripture. It all hangs together. There's a unity. Tim Keller sums this up when he says uh, the, the story of redemption begins in a garden and ends in a city. And with that idea of the garden of Eden on the one hand and the new Jerusalem on the other, it kind of holds everything together. And you see the way that the Bible is one story. If you've been reading God dwells among us, you know that we could take that phrase and say it a little bit differently. Not that it goes from a garden to a city, but that it goes from a temple to a temple. Emphasizing the unity as well, because both the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem and many other types and shadows along the way were all pictures 
of God's tabernacling with his people, erecting dwelling places where God and human beings could commune with one another. That's the story the Bible is telling. And if you know that, if you know about the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, it changes the way you pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Psalm 122. Let's look at Revelation 21. We're not going to read the whole thing, but just a a, a few verses here. In Revelation 21, John's vision of the new Jerusalem, just uh, verses two and three. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So when you think about that vision of new Jerusalem, and then you see the comparison, the connection made between new Jerusalem and the bride, That's really significant because the bride is also the church. And in Ephesians chapter five and verse 32, when Paul gets finished giving his instructions for the relationship between husbands and wives, he concludes by saying, but I'm actually talking to you about Christ and the church. That, that, that relationship of bridegroom and bride is a picture that reveals to us how Christ and the church are related. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul uses that same analogy. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, you, the church, are the bride of Christ. I, as the apostle, betrothed you to Christ, and I want you to remain faithful to him. In Romans 7, if you can remember when we were working through the book of Romans, in Romans 7 and verse 4, Paul makes this comparison to uh, the way that it works, the law works when uh, a spouse dies, compares us, the church, to a widow whose first husband, the law, has died. And so we are free from the law so that we can be joined to Christ. So the church is the bride of Christ. And here in Revelation 21, the bride is Jerusalem. It's interesting if you look at another Pauline passage in Ephesians 2, this comparison becomes clearer. In talking about the church, Paul describes it as a building, as an edifice, as a temple. He says in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you go back to Revelation 21 and you keep reading and you get into the symbolism of the city of New Jerusalem, we actually see in that vision the foundations of the city are named for the 12 apostles of Christ, just as it says in Ephesians 2.20. So you see this connection, this connection between New Jerusalem, the city, and the church, the bride of Christ. 
connection has to do with that, that temple, that dwelling place for God, a temple within the physical city of Jerusalem, but also a dwelling place that God has built for himself within the spiritual city of New Jerusalem. There's a unity between the city and the temple within it. Jerusalem and the temple are kind of put together by the psalmist. There's also in that picture a picture of the church. But in the same way that we would distinguish between like physical Jerusalem, like a city on a map that you could just go and visit, and the spiritual Jerusalem, the city above, the city of God, we would see a difference between those two. We also recognize a difference between, let's say, the church as it is and the church as it will be. The church as it is and the church as it ought to be. Right? Those two things are not the same. Right? The, the physical city has its limitations. The physical city, if you go there now, is in ruins. But the spiritual city is not. And the same thing, I think, can sometimes be said for the church. The call to Jerusalem is a call to Christ's church. A call to gather us together as a body, as a structure, built together, knit together as a dwelling place for God. Because the church is the integral city of God, the place where all the tribes are united, a place full of worship and justice. When you look at the way Jerusalem is described by the psalmist, it's really interesting. He speaks in verse 3, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound together firmly, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. To give thanks to the name of the Lord, their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Built as a city that is bound firmly together. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew is a little bit difficult, but what it seems to be happening is there's a comparison to the way the city's parts are put together and the way that the people have been put together as well. That all the different tribes of the Lord are gathered and united in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem itself has been built up over time into this city whose pieces fit together. In the same way, in the book of Revelation, once more, we see that what Christ does in the church is take many different tribes and fuse them together, bring them together into a city. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 the people sing this hymn to the lamb and they say, by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And when you hear those words, you should think about the incredible diversity of the kingdom of God, the way that, that he has brought so many different people over time into this, this people, this tribe, this unity. But if you read the words of Revelation 9, it doesn't stop there. That you've ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. You have brought all of this diversity and you have brought it into unity. You've brought it into one. Paul speaks in the same way in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, when he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. 
There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is the church? It is the place where God takes the many and makes us into the one. And it is also as Jerusalem was the seat of worship and justice. The people are called to Jerusalem to give thanks and to give thanks is to worship. In fact, giving thanks is a good metaphor for the whole act and experience of worship. What we do in worship is we give thanks to God. Yahweh's covenant of salvation has rescued us. We would have no hope apart from him. And our response is gratitude. All worship is rooted in gratitude for what God has done. But it's not just a place of worship. It's also a seat of government. It's a seat of justice. As you see, the psalmist specifically speaks of the thrones for judgment in verse 5. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This is the, the seat of the messianic kings. And the kings of the Old Testament are also the judges of the Old Testament. The king does justice. He administers judgments. And so where the king sits, that's where justice flows out from. And that's important because the justice of the Messiah is centered in the new Jerusalem, is centered in the church. You hear people say, you've heard them say a lot these days, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And there's an eschatological sense in which that's very true. There will be no peace until there is justice and there will be no justice until one comes who has the power to make peace. Those two ideas go together and live side by side here in the city of God, in the church, where we are called to worship, but we're also called to justice. And what does this tell us about the church? tells us that Jesus calls us to be one. He calls us to be united, to be his body in this place. Because he calls every tribe and nation, he has called us to be a place where diversity can exist in union. A place where very different people with very different backgrounds, very different perspectives can dwell with one another in peace and can love one another. The church is a place where that should be happening, or at least where we should be learning how to live that way. Our disciple-making mission calls us to call people to worship. And it also calls us to call people to Christ and to seek justice, to fulfill the, the mandate that the prophet Micah spoke of so long ago. And interestingly, when the psalmist tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, he also talks about whose sake we're praying for, on whose behalf we pray this prayer. If you look at the final stanza of the psalm, you see these words, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. 
For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The shalom of Jerusalem. Peace, the word in English means, uh, or is translated from the Hebrew word shalom, which is very different, of course, from the English word. In English, we think of peace as the absence of war, the end of conflict. Shalom is, is not a negative, it's a positive. It's not the absence of something, it's the presence of something. It's the presence of wholeness, the presence of well-being, of completeness. So that when you wish someone shalom, you're not wishing that uh, their lives will become a little less conflicted. You are wishing well-being upon them. You are wishing wholeness upon them. You're wishing that they will be what they were made to be. Now, oftentimes when we forget about the new Jerusalem, we forget about the spiritual city. We can read Psalm 122 and think that to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is simply to, to, to want whatever's best for the state of Israel, for example, that it's a political thing. But what's happening here is actually something more than that. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray for the wholeness, for the coming for the well-being and security of the spiritual city. The shalom of the spiritual Jerusalem is what we should long for in prayer. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying basically, may the already be like the not yet. May what you're doing now, Lord, be more like what you intend to do in the age to come, or to put it another way, to use Jesus's words on earth as it is in heaven. And part of that prayer surely is may the church be what it ought to be. May the church do what it ought to do. May it be the kind of place that it should be. What ought the church to be? If you look at Psalm 122, it ought to be a place of security for all who love her. That it should be a bastion of security for all who love her. I know I've been recommending that uh, if you're getting our emails or whatever that, that you watch uh, mission to North America's recent racial reconciliation webinar. Uh, the reason that I recommend it so often is because it's incredibly good. It's a, a conversation that, that although it was kind of impromptu, ends up being a, a real gift for us right now, trying to understand the, the voices that we're hearing all around us that are being raised up in a cry for justice. One of the hardest things about hearing that conversation for me, though, was to realize that for a lot of people, the church has not always been a secure place for those who love her that sometimes it's been insecure, sometimes it's been unwelcoming. Sometimes the church is divided. We can divide ourselves along racial lines and divide ourselves along party lines, along class lines. There are churches that cater to every niche, to every obsession, to every identity. But that is not shalom. That is not wholeness. That is not diversity brought into unity. That is diversity kept at arm's length, right? That's a unity only enjoyed with those who are already like-minded. 
I prize the unity and diversity that, that grace as a church possesses. And I know there are areas you could look at us and say, well, that's not very diverse, but there are other areas where there's, there's a diversity that can be surprising. And it is surprising to people. There are people who've been surprised to, to find what I'm worshiping with people like that. What I have, I have fellow church members who believe things like that. It can be surprising to find yourself in the midst of so much difference and diversity, especially if you felt that unity, especially if you felt the fact that you've been bonded together by Christ with people who are very different than you are. I prize that and I pray that it will grow. But whatever happens in the future, I hope that we can long for peace within these walls and security within these towers for all who love her, that this church would be a bastion for all those who love Christ, a community where we can come together and love Christ together, a place where the love of God, and the love of one another supersedes the love of self. The psalmist prays for the sake of others, for my brothers and my companions sake, for the sake of the house of the Lord, for God's sake and for the sake of others, not for his own sake. This longing for Shalom is not selfish. It's a longing for restoration and wholeness in the world all around. And when Jesus in John 13 gives his new commandment to love one another and says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, for one another. It has to be striking to you in that moment that, that Jesus doesn't say they will know that you are my disciples by your rightness. They will know that you are my disciples by your holiness. They will know that you are my disciples because you can quote the Westminster confession. And if he was going to say any of those things, surely he would have plugged the Westminster. Now, Jesus doesn't not say those things because he doesn't care about that stuff because he's a uniter, not a divider. And it doesn't matter what you believe, just all come together. That's not Jesus's point for Jesus to single out love in this way, to elevate love above all other considerations, things he prizes highly demonstrates to you just how highly he praises love. Just how essential love is above all things, all good things, all priceless things. Love is what you should be known for. Jesus cares about rightness and holiness more than I can express because he cares about them more than I do. But it's love that he singles out here. And it's love that we should aspire to. It's love above all things. Let's aspire to rightness and holiness. Certainly let's aspire to orthodoxy. Let's aspire to a a deep and profound knowledge of our faith. But if we have not love, what do we have? Well, how, how do you love Christ's church? Well, according to the psalmist, it's as simple as saying and seeking. It's as simple as saying and seeking. You look at the end of the psalm, I will say, Shalom be within you. That will be my prayer. If you want to love the church, let that be your prayer. Let your longing, let your desire be for the wholeness of the church. You are loving the church 
when you pray for its well-being. You are loving the church when you pray for its integrity, for its wholeness. When you pray that the church will be faithful to its calling, you are loving it. When your heart longs for the church to be what it ought to be. When you love what we are, but you love even more what we could be by the grace of God, you are loving the church well. When you put others and God ahead of yourself, you are loving Christ's church. You are praying shalom be within you. You're setting your desires on that wholeness. I will say, but I will seek as well. And this is where the psalm ends, and it ends powerfully. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. When you actually work to build the holiness you long for, when when you actually work to build the the well-being, the shalom that you long for, then you are loving the church well. When you not only desire it, but you do it. When you call others to Jerusalem with love, when you create and are part of a community where others can be secure and you summon them to Jerusalem, you say, come to the house of the Lord and worship him with me. You are seeking the good of the church. As we rebuild, let's be a church at peace, united despite our diversity. All around us, people are lashing out. They're devouring each other over their differences. But instead of that, let's love one another despite our differences as Christ has loved us. And as we rebuild, let us do good, especially to one another. Let's serve each other instead of serving ourselves. Let's make this a place where all pilgrims who've been called home can find peace and security for all God's people. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.